Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Radicals in Conversation, a podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. At the end of May, we held our first Pluto Live event, hosted at Amnesty International in London. The event was to launch the new book, Cracks in the Wall, Beyond Apartheid in Palestine, Israel, by Ben White. We were very excited as well to have Carmen Abulsi, Associate Professor in Politics and International Relations at Oxford University, speaking alongside Ben and chairing the discussion. So this month's episode is a bit different to our usual format. We've taken some of the highlights of that conversation between Ben and Karma, as well as a number of questions from the floor, and turned them into a special Pluto Live episode of the podcast. So I hope you enjoy the discussion, and we'll be back in the studio as usual next month talking about labour struggles, logistics workers, and the global supply chain. Ben is a remarkable young man. He said I could say what I like. (laughs) Who has dedicated himself uh, to telling the Palestinian story. I don't use social media, but everyone else I know does, and they always refer to the work he does, which is actually fastidious, consistent in its uh, comprehensive, in its coverage of what people really need to know and what they're not being told. So that requires an enormous amount of uh, dedication, time, and skill to both understand what the mainstream media are doing and what actually people need to know about what is happening. So just for that, it's remarkable. This is what Ben and I have agreed we're going to do in our discussion, is he's going to give us a little 10, 12-minute presentation of it, and we're going to discuss it. I get to ask the first questions, basically, is what it means. And then we'll open up to questions about either this or the book or the issues. And with that, Ben, you ready to go? So, so the three things that I'm going to talk a bit about is, firstly, this book begins, really, and its foundations, in terms of its argument, is the reality on the ground today in Palestine. This book begins with a hard look at the reality on the ground. It's not a new reality um, in all of historic Palestine. The, the book then also shifts focus to look at what, I, what the cracks in the wall in the title refer to, which are developments, internationally speaking, that to my mind offer reasons for optimism and hope. They're developments and trajectories that don't bode well for Israel's ability to maintain the current status quo, at least without any cost. And the third element of the book is a look forward as well. And to that extent, this book is different from the ones that I've written previously. I spend more time looking, looking to the future uh, and, and thinking about how things could be moving in a positive direction on the ground too. So I'm going to elaborate uh, on each one of those points. Uh, and to start off with is the reality on the ground today. And chapter one uh, is called uh, Reality Check. Palestine-Israel is already a single apartheid state. Uh, And I'm just going to read how that chapter begins. It was 4.30 a.m. on 27th of July, 2010, when 1,300 armed Israeli police officers descended upon Al-Arakib, a small, impoverished Bedouin-Palestinian village in the Negev region of southern Israel. 
After blocking the entrance to the village, Israeli forces, including mounted cavalry, bulldozers, and helicopters, forcibly removed residents from their homes, including children and elderly people. By the end of the raid, the Israeli authorities had destroyed some 45 homes, leaving more than 300 people homeless, half of them children under 16 years old. The bulldozers did not spare animal pens and chicken coops, and hundreds of trees were uprooted for replanting elsewhere. According to one resident, the police officers and inspectors smiled as they demolished the village and made victory signs with their hands after the destruction. A village spokesperson told the media, Today we got a close glimpse of the government's true face. We were stunned to witness the violent force being used. The black-clad special unit forces are the true face of then Minister of Foreign Affairs, Avador Lieberman's democracy. Eyewitnesses told CNN that they saw busloads of civilians who cheered as the dwellings were demolished. Just two days before the pre-dawn raid on Al-Rakib, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu told government colleagues that a Negev, quote, without a Jewish majority could constitute a palpable threat to the state. Just a few days before the bulldozers went to work in Al-Rakib, a similar scene had played out in the West Bank as Israeli authorities tore down Palestinian homes en masse in Al-Farasiyah, a herding community in the northern Jordan Valley. On the 19th of July, Israeli forces invaded the village and destroyed more than 70 structures in one fell swoop. The mass demolitions left more than 100 Palestinians homeless, half of whom were children. Among the items destroyed were water tanks and irrigation pipes donated by global charity Oxfam. At the time, its advocacy officer, Cara Flowers, said the area looked like a natural disaster had taken place. The piles of rubble and twisted metal left in Al-Rakib and Al-Farasiyah over a few days in the summer of 2010 were a microcosm of the grim reality that has taken shape in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territory. For both Palestinian citizens in the Negev and Palestinians in the West Bank under military rule, Israeli authorities carry out displacement and dispossession with a rubber stamp of due process. The Green Line, the post-1949 armistice line that distinguishes between territory held by Israel before and after 1967, has been erased in practical terms. The reality on the ground is that of a single regime. In this territorial unit, Palestinians are subjected to institutionalized discrimination, whether they have Israeli citizenship or are under military occupation. And note the similarities between the events and their context in Al-Arakib and Al-Farasiyah. Indigenous Palestinian communities struggle for their very survival thanks to a legal system and bureaucratic apparatus shaped by Israel's explicitly discriminatory political priorities. Jewish homes are built, Palestinian homes are torn down. So that's the setting the scene that the book does at the beginning. And like I said, that's not a reality that's just suddenly emerged overnight. It's a reality that's been developing for years and decades. One of the things that I was struck by in the course of the research for this book was how warnings of Israel's so-called facts on the ground in the occupied Palestinian territories go back 30, 40 years, and they've just been repeated, almost copy and paste, um, uh, for that period of time. Now, the second focus of the book, which I'm going to touch on now, are those cracks in the wall 
those reasons for optimism, those developments, particularly in the US, but, but also elsewhere, that suggest that Israel's traditional pillars of support might not last uh, as long as Israel thinks they will. The story that I tell at the beginning, to my mind, is a story that embodies these different developments. Uh, and it's the story of the appointment, of the nomination and then appointment, of David Friedman, who's now the US ambassador to Israel. Again, I'll just, I'll just read a little something from the introduction to the book which, which looks at this uh, story. It was a Senate hearing like no other. David Friedman, US President Donald Trump's nominee for the position of ambassador to Israel, had been speaking for about 20 seconds when he was loudly interrupted by a man holding a Palestinian flag. Mr. Friedman also said that Palestinian refugees don't have a claim to the land, don't have a connection to Palestine, the man shouted. My grandfather was exiled, was kicked out by the state of Israel. As he was led out by police officers, Tahir Herzallah of American Muslims for Palestine managed one last parting shot. We aren't going away, Mr. Friedman. We were there, we are there now, and we will always be there. Palestinians will always be in Palestine. After an awkward silence, Friedman resumed. But this was just the first of a series of interruptions. Two minutes later, fellow AMP staffer Karim al-Husseini stood up and protested Friedman's support for Israel's illegal settlements in the West Bank. Waving a Palestinian flag, al-Husseini was also removed and arrested. Before Friedman could get to the end of his opening statement, he was subjected to an equally dramatic interruption by three members of If Not Now, a group started in 2014 by young Jewish Americans in the context of so-called Operation Protective Edge. The activists stood after blowing a shofar, a ram's horn used in the Jewish tradition to call our community to action in times of crisis, read their statement, before denouncing Friedman's track record in the strongest terms. You promote racism, fund illegal settlements, one man shouted. We will not be silenced. You do not represent us, and you will never represent us. Another activist stood and stated loudly, Israeli occupation is an injustice against Palestinians and a moral crisis for American Jews. Moral American Jews stand against occupation and against Friedman. Friedman's tumultuous confirmation hearing and the storm surrounding his nomination was more than just a dramatic bump in the road on his way to the ambassador's residence in Israel. It was representative of deeper processes underway in the US which are now accelerating under a Trump presidency. And one of those developments is widening splits in the American Jewish community over Israel and US policy in the region. Another significant subject highlighted by Friedman's nomination is Israel's transformation into a partisan issue in US politics. This was made plain in both the Senate confirmation hearing, where the ambassador-to-be was repeatedly and strongly criticized by Democrats, as well as during the wider debates surrounding his nomination. It wasn't just the Foreign Relations Committee that divided along partisan lines. The Senate's final confirmation of Friedman was a roll call vote described by news website Politico as an unusual step since US ambassadors have traditionally been approved by voice vote or through unanimous consent because of the strong bipartisan support for Israel. The fight over Friedman was only the latest episode to suggest that Israel no longer enjoys the bipartisan consensus in US politics that many had assumed was unshakable. Recall the very public fight over the Iran deal in 2015, which saw the Israeli Prime Minister directly fighting a foreign policy goal of the US President, or the way in which Bernie Sanders' leadership bid in the Democratic primaries 
acted as a megaphone for those within the party who want a tougher line when it comes to Israeli policies. Meanwhile, polls suggest the partisan divide is here to stay. In a February 2017 Gallup survey, 61% of Democrats backed establishing an independent Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, compared to just 25% of Republicans. That same month, the results of a national poll by YouGov was published, in which American adults were asked to rate whether a country was an ally or enemy of the US on a five-point scale. Israel dropped to 16th place from 6th in 2014, a significant enough development, but even more striking was the vast disparity between Republicans and Democrats who had placed Israel 5th and 28th, respectively. So to my mind, the, the nomination of Friedman is a microcosm of these trajectories. Okay? The divisions and growing mobilization and activism, especially of young American Jews in relation to Israel, uh, a criticism of Israeli policies that in some cases expands to include uh, an objection to Zionism itself, as well as um, what I would say is the end of this bipartisan era with respect to uh, Democrats and Republicans and their views towards Israel, uh, and the fact that under the Trump presidency, these are developments uh, that are likely to accelerate. So the, the final uh, point that I wanted to mention, uh, which, which the book covers in its final section, uh, is a look forward, um, and in particular, how a de facto apartheid single state could be transformed into a, a single democratic state. Part of that is, or a big part of that, is uh, the conversation around the Palestinian refugees and the Palestinian refugees' right to return. And of course, this book launch happens uh, pretty soon after uh, a massacre of Palestinian demonstrators in the occupied Gaza Strip by Israeli snipers. The massacre on, the, on May 14th justifiably made headlines, but as many people here might know, that was the culmination or, or came after weeks of Israeli snipers shooting Palestinian uh, civilians inside the occupied Gaza Strip. And those demonstrations took place under the banner of the Great March of Return. And as well as telling us many other things about the conditions in the Gaza Strip and so forth, actually, uh, it shouldn't be ignored that the fact that those demonstrations were focused on and the politics of those demonstrations was about the rights of the Palestinian refugees to return. So a very brief final extract, uh, and this is from the, the last chapter of the book, which is called Self-Determination, Not Segregation. And I refer here to a, a small episode that happened during the very first time I went to Palestine, which was in 2003, so 15 years ago this summer. When I went to Palestine for the first time in 2003, I broadly understood the Palestinian question, and I think probably people might relate to this, I broadly understood the Palestinian question in terms of a struggle against military occupation and for statehood. One day, I was speaking with my students after an English class in Bethlehem, and a resident of Dehesha refugee camp asked rhetorically, why can't I go home? And what I realized then, and my understanding of this truth has only deepened since, is that this question remains in the air, a stark, unanswered challenge, no matter how many efforts are made to smother it. For the State of Israel and the Zionist movement, the return of Palestinian refugees constitutes the undoing of the miracle of the Nakba, an end to the Jewish majority 
created through displacement and discrimination. Seen outside the lens of this demographic anxiety, however, the power of the Palestinians' return is transformative rather than destructive. And that's where the book ends up, um, and uh, I'll leave it there for, for the introduction. The first thing that uh, I'd like to do is just talk for a minute about where you ended up, and then I'd like to ask you the first question about the overall project, in a sense, of the book, in which you told a little bit of the journey, but I'd like to know some, some more about that. But uh, for me, where you ended up, that trip that you made in 2003 and then suddenly learning about going home and the nature of what that means for Palestinians and how this issue, which people can, a lot of people just learned about on May 14th, actually. Mm -hmm. And they, they still don't know about, you know, that it started on March 30th, which is Land Day, which is another, uh, was another massacre of uh, demonstrators against land expropriation in 48. But this uh, idea of one state and the idea of actually the cause and what the cause is about, it's a very interesting those who come to the issue after the Oslo process and the second intifada heralding the end of the Oslo process in a sense. So coming to it then and seeing the problems with trying to impose a framing that excluded the people from it and that the integrity of the Palestinian people, you know, both inside and outside of historic Palestine, whether they're in the Haitia or a few miles down the road, but in Jordan or et cetera, brings us to those issues that um, you keep coming back to, which is what underlies the right of return, self-determination? What are the kind of principles that in internationalism and international solidarity, I would say you as a young person actually come from a very long and old tradition in Britain and I've had the real honor to know generations of British internationalists and it's a very, very strong and rich tradition in this country. And so that knowledge of starting in post-Oslo and suddenly discovering this issue, but that you know, the way that it looks like to Palestinians is we're a refugee people because even those who weren't made refugees, it happened to us as a people, as a society in 48, that dismantling and that major expulsion of the majority of us was something that happened to all of us. And, and just after 2000, this is when we began really the Nakba commemorations because the other thing that you, is very interesting in having the cracks in the wall, which is the signs of hope and looking to the future, is also that you can see these series of events, 47, 49, or we, you know, we go back, Balfour, you know, the list of events. But this understanding of this structure or these details that you give, that this was happening before and before and before, and you only have to talk to a grandfather or anyone in a family, and these, these tactics are very, very pervasive, chronic, and they're following a policy. So when you look at the Nakba as an event, or 67 as an event, or where we are now, or uh, Balfour as an event, it kind of occludes that process of what's happening to us. But also that was very interesting about the Nakba commemorations that started just around that time of your first trip, just around the second intifada, and it, be, it was a very positive thing. 
because uh, there's a way of looking at the tragedy of the Palestinian people and what happened to us in our dispossession. But the generation, the younger generation that worked on holding Nakba events was something to connect all of us and to restore our integrity and to restore our dignity in who we are as a people and what. So interestingly enough, although it was about the catastrophe, these marches and these things are very, very hopeful. And that's something that underlies actually what you see, you know, violence, murder, you know, live ammunition. The people that are involved in these marches, and I know a lot of them that were organizing this Land Day March the 30th, extraordinary and full of hope. And I'm sure you saw that when you went to Palestine, that essential quality, which is restorative and, re and uh, of us as a people. So whenever we can do something that includes all of us, it becomes very hopeful. And so that will lead me to my first question, which is really around, you didn't really talk about the one state and we've got this de facto one state. I mean, you touched on it a little bit at the end, but when you're talking about a vision that unites people, and so what we're talking about is, well, there's a vision that unites the Palestinians, which is very simple principles, which is self-determination and return. Yeah, return home and, and our, our self-determination as a people, and that was always seen as two things. And Oslo said, you can have self-determination and not return, or, yeah, this kind of dividing of what was our integrity. So when you look at the one state and you're looking at the future and how that could be transformed into one state that's not the one state we have today, what do you look to as the mechanisms to do that? I mean, you mentioned BDS a little, you mentioned protests, but there's two. One is the Palestinian arena and one is the solidarity. So yeah. a, a few thoughts from that thinking about self-determination specifically, on the Palestinian side, as you say, under the, under the rubric of the Oslo process, self-determination became detached from the issue of return. And clearly the idea of a single democratic state enables those two to be, to be married together again and to be, to be seen as, as uh, one holistic whole. But the final section of the book actually also addresses a different angle of the self-determination issue because one of the responses that you get when talking about a single democratic state is the uh, argument or, or the accusation, depending on the, the, the situation, that a single democratic state contravenes the Jewish people's right to self-determination and the idea that Israel has a, uh, an intrinsic right to be a so-called Jewish state. So I unpack that a bit as well and I argue that going forward, at the same time as self-determination and return need to be recoupled from the, the Palestinian side of things for the Palestinian people. At the same time, self-determination and ethnic statehood need to be decoupled from the other side uh, so that instead you're looking at an idea of self-determination that is transformative with respect to the dismantling of unequal power structures. And actually, when you commented about how the Palestinian people as a whole are, are a refugee people, even, even if a specific person or a family wasn't, wasn't physically expelled. What that reminded me of was actually another part of my, my personal journey of understanding, to go back to that woman who talked to me in 2003, saying, why can't I go home? Well, she's in Dehesha refugee camp. She's in the West Bank. She's in Palestine. So why does she talk about going home? And 
one of the things that I think people often don't realize is that two in five, more or less, of all UN-registered refugees are within the uh, territory of historic Palestine, inside the occupied Palestinian territory. Of course, you can also add you know, a few hundred thousand Palestinians with Israeli citizenship who are internally displaced. You know. So when you, when you think about that, you actually realize that return isn't simply a question of a physical movement from A to B, although, of course, it is also about the ending of the legal discrimination that alienates Palestinian refugees from their lands and properties, but actually it's, it's bigger than that. It's not just about a physical return, it's about transformation and about uh, the transformation of, of settler colonial structures. Actually, just to take us off from these big issues, and I know people will ask you questions about that, I'd like to know, and I, I think it's a really interesting, and it's how does one write about Palestine and what is that journey like? You know, there's the detail of what's happening every day, and then you need to frame it in mm. some way. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about the research process mm. that you underwent, and then I have a follow-up question, and then eventually everybody else gets a look in, but I just want to ask these two. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I felt very much like I was drawing on and benefiting from the work that I'd done for these, these previous books, and I'm thankful that I had the opportunities that I did to spend time in Palestine, and especially my understanding of how this is a single regime. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know to what extent or to how quickly I would have come to this realization without those weeks and months that I spent there, uh, without going to visit people who are inside 48 in, in Nazareth and Haifa, and going, for example, on a Nakba return march in uh, 2008, in Sephoria outside Nazareth and you know the next day seeing the kind of scenes that I talk about play out in the Jordan Valley and so forth and, and from the flip side of that the way in which Israeli settlers living in Ariel can go for come and go as they please and that that time on the ground was was instrumental for my my general understanding of what's was happening and and the, the, the structures just one other thing I'd mention, actually, which I found, which I alluded to in my remarks, which I thought was genuinely fascinating, was, I mean, I don't know how many op-eds I've read or how many op-eds people have read in this room along the lines of Israel's facts on the ground have made a two-state solution impossible. Okay? Some variation of that theme. And normally referring to the number and size of settlements in the occupied West Bank and, and East Jerusalem. Well, so what I, what I realized was that this is a a long and rich tradition that goes back a really long time. And I did actually bookmark something because I wanted to give an example of this, which it's extraordinary in the sense that it really shows you that what's been at stake here the whole time isn't some magic practical cutoff point, but something far deeper and, and, and fundamental. Um, so, for example, you've got in April 1982, a former Israeli official predicted that, quote, within a few years, if anyone were to suggest giving up any part of the occupied Palestinian territories, or he said of the territories, the suggestion would be regarded as no different than that of giving up part of the Negev or the Galilee. A few months later, so this is still in 1982, former Deputy Mayor of Jerusalem, Meron Benvenisti, warned that the settlement enterprise in the occupied territories was already so well advanced that it was, quote, five minutes to midnight in 82 in terms of preventing an irreversible Israeli hold on the West Bank. Um, and then I've discovered one document, Professor Ian Lustig. Oh. And he, he wrote a document in 1985 for uh, the US government uh, that they commissioned, 
And the title of this document that he wrote is The Irreversibility of Israel's Annexation of the West Bank and Gaza Strip, Critical Evaluation. This is a 1985 report that he wrote. And I write here, it's an extraordinary read, not least because of the ways in which many of the key arguments are still repeated more than 30 years later. At the time, there were some 40,000 settlers in the West Bank, in addition to more than 100,000 in East Jerusalem. It is tempting, in light of the fact that the West Bank settler population has increased tenfold since then, to conclude that if Israel's annexation of the territories was debatable in 1985, it's certainly a done deal in 2018. But then Lustig actually elaborates on this and gives a more nuanced argument, and he talks about there being an institutional threshold and a psychocultural threshold with respect to annexation. Psychocultural. Yeah. And he talks about the way in which actually, in terms of saying, yes, it's a fait accompli, mm -hmm. you have to look at the extent to which Jewish-Israeli uh, politicians and society view these territories as part of Israel. So, so there, was, there was aspects of that that I found very, very interesting and illuminating. Again, not just because it reminds you sort of depressingly how things have been stuck on, on one level for so long, but also in that it gives you this realization that there is only limited gains to be made with respect to both understanding and action in terms of saying, well, actually, you know, is this too many settlers? Are these too many settlements? Um, obviously, the, the facts on the ground matter, and they matter in particular for the Palestinians who live amongst these colonies. But the, the bigger questions are, are, are quite different to that. My question to Ben in regard to BDS is, if a close relative of his was dying of an incurable disease and the only drug available was from Israel, what would come first, his politics or his family? The BDS campaign is not about a personal purity test because it's a political campaign and I mean maybe people don't realize what the BDS campaign is and what its point is and uh, it stands for boycott divestment sanctions there are three specific demands that dozens of Palestinian civil society groups came together and agreed on um, with respect to why the boycott call is being made actually Carmen sort of mentioned these or alluded to the existence of these three demands uh, and that is the end of Israel's military occupation of Palestinian territories, uh, the right for equality and the end to discrimination faced by Palestinian citizens of Israel, and the right of return for Palestinian refugees. And in those three demands, you have encapsulated various plights uh, and struggles of the Palestinian people writ large. But the point of the BDS campaign, as uh, I'd say, I guess, all political boycott campaigns, is to apply strategic pressure. And although as individuals, it's important to try and not contribute to a variety of injustices that aren't just restricted to Palestine. The point of a BDS campaign is actually to zoom in on and focus on a specific campaign uh, and take collective action in order to make an achievement. So I would encourage anybody who's thinking about the issue of BDS uh, actually not to get sidetracked by specific questions about, you know, do I use this or that? Actually, it's about going, okay, there's this campaign happening at the moment, or in my particular context, a university, a trade union, a faith community, whatever it happens to be, where is the complicity? Where can I find what, what's going on with respect to the pension funds, what's stocked on the shelves, that kind of thing, uh, and uh, look for ways to join other people in uh, applying pressure in those particular situations. I mean, just to add one more thing about the boycott and sanction tactics and strategies which is used by 
uh, anti-colonial liberation movements, labor movements all over the world. Uh, this one in particular is based in international law and the implementation of international law, and we'd rather states enforce their obligations to Israel and stop it carrying out war crimes. But it's this absence that you talk about, you know, the absence of states taking their responsibilities, which is why citizens have to put pressure. It shouldn't be for citizens to have to do that. So in any kind of hypothetical of the last drug, of the last whatever, actually the reality is it's Palestinians that are dying from sniper bullets and live ammunition that Britain is providing as, as arms trade. And that doesn't mean one can't be against arms trade that are complicit in international crimes everywhere. But there's something about the nature of this relationship that there's nothing to see here, don't move, and the amount of aid and assistance and support it gets, which makes it unlike any other, combined with this impunity. In light of the discussion in the book and in light of the cracks in the wall, and the changes in the international scene um, kind of surrounding the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. How do you read last week's events in, in Palestine and Gaza? And is it, is it a step back? Is it a part of a bigger picture that we can't see? Or is it too early to speculate? I mean, there's been so many funerals in the Gaza Strip in the last weeks, like I said, going way back before May 14th people whose lives aren't presented in this country as, as being the lives of fathers and brothers and colleagues and students, but at best as numbers and perhaps simply terrorists or uh, human shields and, and so forth. And as Karma mentioned, alongside the heavy burden of that human toll, the very existence of those protests, the different elements that have been part of the Great March of Return demonstrations, of which there have been many elements, you know, is something positive as well, as well as something horrendous in terms of the Israeli response. Perhaps with respect to how the US has once again shielded Israel from the meager attempts at accountability, at least there will be a Human Rights Council mandated investigation, which the UK government abstained on in a sort of fairly typical UK government uh, fashion. And so I guess those events both demonstrate the, the horror of the current apartheid reality, because for a number of years now, Palestinians in the Gaza Strip experience uh, the worst of Israeli apartheid, the worst of Israeli occupation. You know? Even when it's quiet, fishermen are shot at, uh, farmers are shot at, and of course they live under a, a crippling uh, blockade. Um, and it also embodies Israeli impunity. And of course, that's, I think, why there is the connection again to people's anger about impunity, the way in which that can be helpfully fed into and directed towards things like calls for an arms embargo and to BDS campaigns and so forth. So the, the unfortunate fact is, is that things on the ground, practically speaking, have got worse for a long period of time and realistically will probably continue to get worse and it has to be our motivation for continuing with our efforts um, at ending that systematic impunity. I don't know if you speak about it on the book or not, but what do you think is going to happen to the Palestinian Authority for the coming years? What's going to happen to them? Yeah. What's going to happen? Mm. <laughs> um, Why are you looking at me? Well, you might have a, a few comments on this one, but, I mean, 
it's sort of labored on primarily because of external support, also because Israel has seen it as in its vested interests for it to continue. I just read something yesterday by an Israeli military uh, correspondent for Haaretz talking about the, the post-Abbas era, assuming that that's going to happen soon. And what this article was talking about was how actually from the security officials' point of view, the Israeli security officials' point of view, simply getting rid of the PA is not seen as desirable. It's seen as an agent of stability. It's seen as a, a way of avoiding anarchy and, of course, also continues to perform its role in so-called security coordination with the Israeli uh, occupation too. But it's clearly limping on to its eventual demise. Now, again, unfortunately, I think it's quite likely just because Abbas departs the scene at some point doesn't mean that what or who takes his place will be any better. I mean, I say better with respect to, from the Palestinians' point of view, with respect to uh, taking the issue of democracy representation or having a viable strategy for national liberation seriously. The successor might not be any better. Um, there might be a collection of successes. There might be a power struggle. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, the Palestinian Authority survives because it's in Israel's interest, survives because of external aid, survives because it's also providing daily income, providing a, you know, a means for people to put bread on the table. Uh, but it's a relic, politically speaking. You know, it's a relic of the Oslo process. Um, what and how exactly it will end, I'm not sure about. But that it must transform or as part of a broader revitalization of Palestinian national structures, that that must take place for any serious progress to happen is, I think, an obvious, an obvious sort of point to make. I don't know whether Carmen would like to chip in there. The PA wasn't uh, designed by the Palestinian people. It was designed by the international actors that were involved in negotiating this. And it was a five-year limited institution. It's not the representative of the Palestinian people and was never meant to be the representative. It was an interim agency. And now it's the location and the source of where donors, international donors, give funds to pay for our teachers and um, you know, everybody that works. And I was part of an advisory to a select committee report on development in 2002, something like that, 2003, the run-up of the war, and that it's shown without question the data from the World Bank and everything else is the only reason we need aid and assistance is because the occupation has destroyed our economy. It's a man-made destruction of our economy. So, this kind of support for disbursement for salaries for both security, but also for our people uh, working in the West Bank and Gaza, for our teachers, for our nurses and everything else. And that's where the money comes through and that's what's sustaining it. It's an artificial limited institution that was meant to last for five years between 1994, five and 1999, 2000. So we have a representative, which is a liberation movement and it's really been hollowed out, but it is at least uh, is a representative recognized at the United Nations. We gained recognition when a lot of the anti-colonial movements did, the ANC, SWAPO, the PLO, the mid-70s, and that represents our inalienable rights as a Palestinian people. The PA has nothing to do with that. It doesn't have that accountability, responsibility, and it also isn't the sovereign body that represents our rights as a people. That's where the donors are putting, not only paying for the occupation, but actually locking us into this structure that doesn't represent us. 
And uh, it's very difficult for Palestinians to say, oh, let's abandon the PA. If your salary as a teacher or as a nurse or something is coming from the PA, and the only reason you need donor money is because the Israeli occupation has destroyed your economy. So that's that trap that we're in. It's a classic colonial structure right there. I'm wondering what your take is regarding um, how the Palestinian citizens of Israel play into the cracks in the wall that you're seeing. How are you seeing maybe recent developments or shifts within the Palestinian community inside the state and how that's having an impact? To my mind, what comes to mind straight away is the way in which a growing mobilization, politicization of Palestinian civil society organizations inside Israel have contributed to a late but welcome awareness internationally of their situation and of, of the discrimination that they face. So the decision to sort of to take that global, as it were, clearly is playing an important role in expanding the conversation that we're not just talking about a military occupation. And it is significant that the European Parliament has considered the systematic discrimination faced by Palestinian citizens of Israel. And the way in which it relates to those international cracks is quite important. The way in which I think it relates to uh, the awareness of younger Jewish Americans, for example, to the discrimination faced by Palestinian citizens of Israel. But of course, it also relates to the internal scene as well. The legislation that has either been passed or is in the process of, of being discussed, the, the sort of spouse separation law going back a long, you know, long time now, all the way through to uh, restrictions on Nakba commemoration through to the in the works Jewish nation state bill. To my mind, those things can't be separated from that mobilized and assertive body of Palestinians inside and that this is a, a backlash and a response to that. And it's evidence of the way in which you, you can't think of this conflict as being resolvable through the prism of a two-state solution, even, even an actual two-state solution. Because what does Sipi Livni say? From Israel's point of view, a so-called centrist, but who actually needs special protection every time she lands here so she's not arrested for war crimes. She talked to Israeli high school students a number of years ago about how when there is a Palestinian state, again, she doesn't really mean an actual state, but she said when there is a Palestinian state, the answer to the national question for Israeli Arabs is there. As soon as you look at it or examine it with any sort of seriousness, it's a horrific thing to say. It flies in the face of most people's understanding of, of how a state relates to its citizens and so forth. Um, it's that little insight into the way in which the, the question of Palestine isn't just a question of military occupation. And so anyway, so the role played by the Palestinian citizens of Israel in, in a variety of ways has forced that backlash. And that backlash in turn has helped internationally show what's really happening there. My question is about the use of the word apartheid. And could you make a comment on the process of making this absolutely apt word, in this case, more mainstream? And particularly in the case of the report that came from Virginia Tilly and Richard Falk and how that was cut down previously, could you just make some comments on that? It is still controversial for some people. And the first book I wrote in 2009 was called Israeli Apartheid, A Beginner's Guide. I would say that almost a decade on, there is a greater acceptance of the ability to use that, that term. 
It is, of course, lamentable that a UN body was pressured to delete from its website a eminently credible and thorough academic study of the way in which the crime of apartheid from an international law point of view is being practiced by Israeli authorities. One encouraging development that I would say, and actually does relate to Amnesty, in the context of their work in Myanmar, the report that came out that talked about the crime of apartheid being perpetrated there, I imagine will be used as a precedent for subsequently examining whether Israeli authorities are also committing the crime of apartheid. And I think a lot of mainstream human rights organizations are describing apartheid and just not using that word for different reasons. Human Rights Watch have talked for ages about a separate, not equal system and parallel legislation and so forth. You can actually talk about apartheid in Israel, actually, with a greater degree of freedom than you can here. I mean, even in the Knesset, people talk about Israeli apartheid. But, you know, you won't find many British parliamentarians talking about apartheid. Uh, I think that it will continue its snail's pace entry into mainstream discussion. I think that's much more likely to happen as people understand the way in which it's a de facto single state. And I think it will happen also as people understand that the crime of apartheid exists and it's not just a means of political mobilization or an analogy with South Africa and so forth, that actually there is substance to it and that that substance is is there for, for anyone to examine or to understand. Thank you, Ben. Very informative and educational as always. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how people in the room who perhaps are less familiar with pro-Palestinian circles, how they can take that information on once they have finished the conversation in here. There are, there are lots of ways that one can take this forward, and it's going to be different, you know, depending on, depending on uh, everyone's circumstances. I certainly would encourage people to look for a way in which they can be part of something bigger in terms of an organization or a movement, whether it's being part of Amnesty and supporting the settlement boycott campaign, whether it's being part of an advocacy organization like Palestine Solidarity Campaign, whether it's getting involved with the campaigns that War on Want do and so forth. There's a lot of ways. They don't all involve loads of time and effort. They often can involve just, you know, a bit of investment in terms of briefing yourself on a particular campaign and doing whatever it is that's being asked. That can seem small, but the cumulative effect is, is genuinely felt. And the positive things that are taking place in this country and in the US and in other places, those are only happening precisely because of this drip, drip, and incremental approach that people have spent years doing. So absolutely, look for whatever that means in your particular situation. You know. I personally think just to emphasize the significance of, or the utility of a BDS campaign. I think the reason why it's so important is because it educates as you do it, because of its political framework with respect to its understanding of Israeli policies as forms of occupation and colonialism and apartheid, and the way in which it gives people a genuinely useful, effective outlet for their justifiable anger at the impunity with which Israel conducts itself. <laughs>